Coming up next, the bookening deduces its way through Sherlock Holmes. Hey everybody, welcome to The Bookening. I am Nathan, your humble and obedient host, and I'll let you deduce who's doing the podcast with me through a series of clever clues. So we have a very round gentleman, globs of fat attached to his face and his body. Tufts of hair poking out from in between the crevasses of the fat. Everywhere but on top. Everywhere but on top. Can you deduce who this gentleman is? Nathan? Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, it's me. It's me. It's Nathan, your humble and obedient host. We've also got a svelte, handsome man that we would never fat shame. Brandon, the only thing we could do with Jake is thin shame him, shame him right now because he's lost some weight. He's as yeah. skinny as a rail. He's as yep. skinny as a, a, a dying rail. Hmm. And <laughs> <laughs> a dying rail. <laughs> a dying rail, yes. Well, guys, it's a b- b- bonus episode today wherein we discuss the great consulting detective himself, sure. Lock Holmes and Brandon. Did we decide who? Am I going to do some context here? Yeah, you're going to do some right. Conan Doyle. Yeah, some Conan Doyle. Conan context. the Barbarian. Yeah, Arthur, King Arthur, King Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle, Doyle, a lovely young gentleman at our church here lives with a family from our church and ah, goes, to, goes to Lighthouse. For, wait, what about him though? Is his name? His name Do- is Doyle. Doyle. He goes by Doyle, yeah. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. I think you left that part out of the story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, 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 it could be wrong. <laughs> I was but waiting yeah, for yeah. the connection, too, so. Yeah. So we know an Arthur, we know a Conan, and we know a Doyle, so. That's good stuff. Do I know? Do I, I'm trying to think if I personally know. I, King I Arthur was. Conan the Barbarian O'Doyle uh, rules. Yep. All the greats. All right the wonderful greats. Well, listen, folks, I'm going to help out, <coughs> excuse me, with context today. I want to talk about Sherlock Holmes. We're excited to do it. People have been asking for this for years. And so today, in a little bonus episode, which you might be able to tell we're recording via the internet. But is this releasing in that, August? No, this is really, yeah, this is releasing in August. So. so there was already a mystery earlier this month, I heard. Yes, yes. How are you doing, Brandon? You all right? I'm fine. You're fine. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, as fine as you can be. As fine as you can be after everything that happened. Yeah, well, people can listen to the episode that came out before this one to find out this creepy thing that happened to me on Brandon's property. But listen, Arthur Conan Doyle. He was born on May 22nd, 1859 in Edinburgh. It's my dad's birthday. May 2nd, 1859? Yeah. Your dad it- is like 200 and... 40 years old or something. Exactly right. Yeah. That was... You're way off, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. My math was really bad on that. <laughs> it's like 160 or something like that. <laughs> your dad's 160? Yeah. Yeah. Is your dad, you're saying May 22nd is your dad's birthday? Uh-huh. May 4th is Star Wars Day. Mm. May, May 21st is my wife's birthday. Hey, there you go. Lots of great people have birthdays in May, including Arthur Conan Doyle, who was born in Edinburgh into a prosperous Irish family. Did you guys know he was Irish? I think so. Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, Arthur Conan Doyle Elementary, my dear Watson. I wonder if he and James Joyce were friends. Listen, oh, here's a fun fact, guys. You remember Moby Dick, how it had whales and whaling ships? Really? Uh huh. I must have missed that? that. I think I missed that part. Okay, well, if you go back to Moby Dick, you'll find 
there, a large section section of it is concerned with whaling and whale boats and whale ships. Well, guess what Arthur Conan Doyle has to do with that? Nothing. He was the white whale. <laughs> yeah, he was the white whale. He actually died when Ahab put a harpoon through him. They both sunk into a whirlpool. No, he's he the one was... that whale cake that everybody loves. The little ice cake, ice cream cake that's a whale cake. Arthur Conan Doyle's a whale cake? <laughs> they based that cake off him, right? Because he was a whale. Yeah, one well, of the only he's whales. one of the lone survivors of the Essex. Little known fact uh, about him, and he had to resort to cannibalism. These are all terrific guesses, and I'm proud of you guys and proud to be podcasting <laughs> with you. But, in fact, he was a surgeon ah. on a whaling boat. Was he oh. a whale surgeon? <laughs> nah, I think he worked on humans, mostly. <laughs> they, they weren't really in the business of keeping those whales alive. It's like a whale, a whale plastic surgeon going out there giving Botox to the sperm whales, so they're flat. Yeah, they come in behind the whaling ships, Brandon. And the injured whales, they would capture and perform surgeries on to heal them up and send them back into the wild. It's only right. fair. And it's like, whales, it's like those insane us. tournaments in the Lamort D'Arthur where you go out and you get yourself impaled by a spear. And if you survive, you heal up to do it another day. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, like that. that. Huh. Well, Whale I'm, tournaments. I'm, yeah, I'm glad we got this all figured out. <laughs> so... Oh, I should have said he... Did I say he was trained as a doctor for in Edinburgh University? That seems important if you're going to be a doctor on a ship to be trained as one first. (laughs) And then he became a surgeon on a whale. He didn't just like... Hey, guess what, Nathan? Yeah. Before he started writing his books, he went to school to learn how to read and write. Huh. Do you think that he drank milk You know, he didn't go to school at all. Yeah, who? Shakespeare. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't even know how to read. That guy. Yeah. Much less right. right. Francis Bacon, on the other hand, wrote some great plays. So Arthur Conan Doyle, he's a surgeon on a whaling boat. Bacon. And then he, he, yeah. And then he becomes a medical officer on a another boat, a steamer that travels between Liverpool and West Africa. And then he settles finally after this eventful few years of life, he settles in Portsmouth and becomes a part-time doctor, part-time writer submits a little story called a study in scarlet that you guys may be familiar with to beaton's christmas annual in 1887 and it was something of a flop apparently didn't do too super well in beaton's christmas annual but decided to write the sign of the four which is, I think, a novel. If I'm, is the sign of the four. Some of you, you guys, Jake, you're a bigger Holmeshead than I am. I think it's a novella. It's a novella. Yeah. So, so is Study in Scarlet. So, Study in Scarlet and Sign of the Four are the first two, yeah, that's right. and that's they're right. both yep. sort of novels or novellas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not I've especially long, so you can like, I think you can listen to each of them in under an hour a piece or something dumb like that. Or well, apparently the that, story. If you apparently the story speed. is that. Yeah, you can listen to him at three times speed and go even faster than that. Apparently, the story is that there's a dude named Joseph Stoddart, who's the editor of Lippincott's monthly magazine, and he's at this dinner party with Doyle after the first story comes out, Study in Scarlet, and he really liked it. So he's like, hey, you should write another little novel featuring this detective dude so that I can put it in my magazine. And what's kind of fun is that Oscar Wilde was also present at that dinner party and also was convinced to write a novel for the magazine the only novel he ever wrote picture of dorian gray which appeared the same year as the sign of the four which is another sherlock holmes thing so we have joseph stoddart to thank for sherlock holmes and oscar wilde success and uh, and oscar wilde they were all at a dinner dinner party i'm sure oscar wilde was saying witty stuff like the only thing worse than being at a dinner party with Arthur Conan Doyle is not being at a dinner party with Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, man, that would be really witty if he had said that. With stuff like that, uh, in, exercising his incisive wit. Yeah. And good stuff. Hey, he's someone we've never done on this podcast. Yeah, we should we should do Picture of Dorian Gray sometime. That would be fun. Maybe, maybe it could be our October thing. I don't know. What? So So anyway, Sherlock Holmes writes more books. Nope, sorry. Strike that, reverse it. Conan Doyle 
writes lots sure more Sherlock Holmes stories. Once they take off, he wrote a total of 56 short stories and four novels. Any Sherlock Holmes fan worth their salt knows this, but in 1893, Conan Doyle killed off Holmes, had him fall into the Brickenbach Falls, fighting his arch nemesis, Reichenbach, sorry. And he was inundated with letters and people. They're like, ah, you can't kill Sherlock Holmes, you stupid jerk. And so he was like, okay, I guess I have to bring him, bring back, him back from the dead. And I think a lot of people, I seem to remember feeling this way when I was more into the Sherlock Holmes canon, feel like the pre-death stories are the really true classics. And maybe you can kind of tell that Arthur Conan Doyle's heart isn't always in it. He was just kind of phoning it in after that? Phoning it. Well, I don't think that they're all, I mean, I think a real Sherlock Holmes fan loves everything. The best day fishing is still, or the worst day fishing is still better than the best day working. But I think. I don't know about that. There's some variable. Yeah, I don't know about that either, but it's just a, a dumb saying that people say. My kids uh, recently caught 204 fish and we had to clean them all. And that's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. I wouldn't have been happy about that. Yeah, I don't know that I would have said that that was better than a day of work. How many fish uh, was that? It was a day of work. 204. 204. That is just slightly less than the amount of times that Sherlock Holmes has been filmed. He is the most filmed. He's not the most filmed fictional character. That would be Dracula. But he is the most filmed human. If you count Dracula as not quite human, then Mm -hmm. you can give Sherlock Holmes that he is the most filmed and most adapted character in literature. Anyway, Conan Doyle Conan Doyle wrote lots of Sherlock Holmes novels. He also wrote a lot of other stuff. He wrote The Lost World, which is about an expedition that goes into the Lost World and discovers dinosaurs, kind of the coolest and best in dinosaur fiction before Michael Crichton. He wrote a lot of nonfiction, things like a pamphlet justifying Britain's uh, involvement in the Boer War, which apparently got him a knighthood. He also wrote a history of the Boer War and of World War I. Tried unsuccessfully to run for parliament. I'm just reading from BBC's website here on Sherlock Holmes. Well, at least it's not Wikipedia. No, I would never read from Wikipedia. Because that would be one star. Yeah, I'm not like some other people. The the other thing I could say about him (laughs) is about Brandon. No, I read from Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. This podcast is all taken verbatim from Wikipedia. (laughs) I mean, come on. What else are you going to do? What what else are you going to do? I don't don't know. Actually, try. Arthur Conan (laughs) Doyle. Was that? Try, yeah. Actually, try and do a good podcast. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle famously really interested in spiritualism, which was very much in vogue in that Victorian area. This is when you have lots of seances, witch doctors, not witch doctors, sorry. Seances and mediums and spiritualists and stuff like that. I don't know why witch doctor doctor came out. (laughs) Do you think they had to go to medical uh, school? Witch doctors? Yeah. 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 Witch doctors? So <laughs> Are we doing who's on first? <laughs> yeah, I was. I figured Those doctors. Not. Yeah. Those doctors. Conan Doyle, he was really interested in spiritualism. He was taken in by several hoaxes, most famously the Cottingswood Fairies, which involved these two little girls taking oh, yeah. photographs of what they purported yeah. to be fairies. It's, it's really hard to respect someone after that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like detective monkey, powers were a little Monkey off bones there. or something like that. Yeah, it was. I forget what it all it was. It was just like paper cutouts and some it was just like little paper stuff. fairies. Yeah, there, there's a whole story to it. It's interesting. You can look it up. But he just Sherlock really, Holmes. really wanted to believe. He really wanted to believe, and he really wanted scientific proof for his belief. So he was a, a rabid spiritualist, which doesn't usually make its way into the Sherlock Holmes. I don't stories. I don't think no, because Holmes wouldn't much. have much patience with that kind of stuff. A few other fun facts. Sherlock Holmes was originally going to be called, anybody know? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, that's right. And then they figured out that Arthur Conan's Toil's dog had that name. Sharonford. He was supposed to be called Sharonford. Ooh. Sherlock was a better decision. Sherlock, yeah, definitely. Sherlock was a better. True or false? Sherlock Holmes, where's the deerstalker in the book? False. 
False, yes. That comes from the images that were... Uh, Basil Rathbone. Well, Strand Magazine, you know, the oh. famous Sydney, Sydney Paget, the illustrations, has him wearing the deer stalker. But then, yeah, Basil Rathbone in the 30s movies really solidified it. And Sherlock Holmes, I've heard, technically does not make deductions if you use the actual logical form of deductions. He does something called... What's the opposite of... Does, does, no. Inductive reasoning. I don't think he does inductive, though, does he? It's been a long time since I've studied any of this stuff. It's been a long time since I have, too. I thought I thought it was deduction, the art of deduction. Yeah. It's I mean, the art I, of deduction, okay. dear Nathan. It is the art of deduction? Which oh, one? Oh, Brendan just got out of pipe. Which one? Sorry, I went to get a pipe, and now I'm back. But you need to tell me again. What are you trying to oh, figure uh, out? Oh, Sherlock Holmes, does he <clears throat> use deductive reasoning or abductive reasoning or inductive reasoning or what? Well, he would deduce from the facts that he sees, but induction is also when you look at your surroundings and make observations. You in- I, I think he uses inductive reasoning. Yeah. So I think it's inductive. Because he's, he has seen various instances of this thing, and therefore through inductive reasoning can deduce that this is a situation that follows that same logic. I think the difference is... If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, but I think the difference is deduction moves from theory to observation and induction moves from observation to pattern recognition. Induction. Yeah, induction starts from like, so like... Details. Details. So like with with Aristotle, you start with a, a child sees a flower, then he sees another flower and his parent keeps pointing out, that's a flower, that's a flower. And through familiarity with what a flower is, he can, through induction, learn the concept of flower. That's a, that's induction. So it moves from particulars into generals. Whereas deduct, deduction actually moves from generals to particulars. Yeah. A so big, a broad laws. theory. Yeah. Right. Man is mortal. Well, okay. Jake is a man, therefore Jake is mortal. So according to this that I found on our good friend Google, what Sherlock Holmes actually does is abductive reasoning like he gets so abducted by aliens or something yeah yeah you get no so deductive is making an inference based on widely accepted facts or premises if uh-huh. a beverage is defined as drinkable through a straw one could use deduction to determine soup to be a beverage inductive reasoning or induction is making an inference based on observation often of a sample you can induce that the soup is tasty if you observe all your friends consuming it abductive reasoning or abduction is making a probable conclusion from what you know if you see an abandoned bowl of hot soup on the table, you can use abduction to conclude the owner of the soup is likely returning soon. So it's like a combination of your inductive and deductive reasonings. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I grasp abductive reasoning based on what I just read, but it does sound the I mean, most it sounds like, like what it, Sherlock Holmes does. It also sounds like it relies on induction and deduction. Yeah. Whatever. Making a probable conclusion from... In abductive reasoning, the major premise is evident, the, but the minor president premise and therefore the conclusion are only probable. That's so you have to figure out, so it's a type of deduction. Right. You have to figure out the missing premise, which will then lead you to the right conclusion. Yeah, that does sound a lot like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Uh, abduction is technically defined as a syllogism in which the major pre- pre- premise is evident, but the minor pre- premise and therefore the conclusion only probable. So it really just has to do with the probability. Which means it's then it's, all, it's also a form of induction because then like famously he'll like look at your fingernails and be able to tell where you've been because he's seen that kind of dirt before. Right. Right. Well, I don't know if that's a famous instance. I said famously, but I don't know if that's actually something that happens that, in one of the books. That sort of thing. But it's that kind of thing. Yeah. But he would only know that because he's experienced. So induction deals with experiences that you then draw general principles from. Yeah, right, that's Right. right. So but, I think but, the famous example of induction is every swan observed is white. Therefore, we can induce the po- possibility that all swans are white. That's reasonable. Yeah. And, and we have a good reason to believe that conclusion. But the truth isn't like verified by that, right? So, Well, I'm wondering if that's not what technically is actually called... So abductive, a syllogism which, in which the major premise is evident. So you have dirt on your fingernails. 
the minor pre- premise is, and therefore the conclusion only probable. So the minor premise is you got dirt on your fingernails from Portugal, from Portugal. And therefore the conclusion is you're a smuggler from, but Portugal yeah, but it, or, or, all I'm saying is that it uses induction and deduction. Yeah. It sounds like abduction. The real distinction is that it's talking about explanations as opposed to principles. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, there you go. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, I guess Bye. I guess Sherlock Holmes uses all of them <clears throat> depending on the circumstance, but he's just really famous for deduction, which is technically the one that he uses the least, I guess. Brandon, do you have anything you want to add to context about Victorian literature or detective fiction or um, anything else we need to know? Well, detective fiction, and we've talked about this before with, I guess, Agatha Christie. Yeah, I suppose. It was kind of a new thing in the 1800s, and Arthur Conan Doyle really helped to solidify it. But you had some predecessors, most famously Detective Bucket in Bleak House was one of the first Mm -hmm. detectives. But in the Victorian age, you had gothic literature and you had the rise of the horror genre. But as we talked about with Frankenstein, you also had this rising interest in the post-Enlightenment world with science and progress. And with that was the idea that you could make sense of your world through observation, through scientific observation. And so I think it was inevitable that detective fiction would come out of that sort of mentality, Mm -hmm. right? That I don't think detective fiction was going to come out of the medieval way of understanding the world, uh, very philosophically and theologically. And so once, once men began to trust their own powers of observation to determine truth, And that through generalities of, you know, you look at all these particulars and you can come to general conclusions that can actually help you determine unknowns, Mm -hmm. which is abduction. I mean, abductive reasoning is kind of the scientific reasoning that combines both deduction and induction, right? Yeah, it hypothetical. it is always going to follow or fall into the trap of lending itself to affirming the consequent. Right, which is where a lot of scientific theory, especially that 19th and early 20th century scientific theory, goes awry and goes wacko. It's yeah. the same thing that Holmes, the same principle of Darwin, ex- trying to extrapolate his grand theory of evolution. Right. Yeah. Is just like Holmes coming back and saying somewhere in 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 the Holmes catalog that you should be able to take like the smallest part of an engine, and if you were good enough be able to work your way back to the entire machine. So like from a single screw, be able to, which is insane. That stupid. Is insane. Yeah, but but there's a, there, there, there is a, p- a place in Holmes where he makes that kind of, that sort of claim. Yeah. But it's that same conceit and it's highly arrogant and foolish, but it did sweep the world. Yeah. That through our machine knowledge, through our understanding of with science and observation and hypothesis, that sort of mentality that still really dominates a part of our world today with we know what we know and we know what we can't know. And so you get, well, who's that famous science writer for PBS? Oh, uh, that everybody Neil loves deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. The same yeah. sort of mentality is behind him, right? That there's a sort of, they have a false humility in light of what is unknown by science, but a really strong arrogance in light of what they think we know through science. Mm-hmm. And so you see the same thing with, with the thing that gave rise to Sherlock Holmes, that through these intense powers of observation, if somebody were to really train their minds and faculties that way, that you could really help know what before couldn't be known. And so it's really a championing, championing of the new progressive science movements that were coming out in the 1800s. Uh, you would see the same thing with like H.G. Wells and... Other so there there's a correlation between the rise of <laughs> the, t- the detective genre that kind of detective genre and science fiction yeah. at least progress science fiction interesting I mean of course then you'll get twists on it like you'll have Dorothy Sayers with Father Brown write her own versions where you have where people try to combine the sort of mystery and poetry of it all with this sort of scientific understanding of the world. So, but that's kind of where Sherlock Holmes came from. And my understanding is Arthur Conan Doyle was involved somewhat with forensics, right? The creation of forensics as a science. Yeah, so he had a a professor in medical school that Holmes himself is based on. um, Bell or something like that. That's right, Dr. Bell. 
but yeah, through both his combination of surgical skills and his uh, kind, of, kind of honing of his own Holmesian crafts, yeah, I got involved in several police cases and things like that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah and so it was that belief, and we still see it today, and, like the NCIS and those things, those shows yeah. that we can defeat crime, we can defeat what generally people would try to hide with obscurity. We can defeat that with with science and with mm-hmm. this sort of forensic approach. And so, House was one of these shows. And occasionally, you get the TV shows that take that idea and play with it in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, and he's been. I guess the only other thing I would say is that Sherlock Holmes, as a type, was extremely influential in pretty much every detective you see. After Sherlock Holmes, he's like one of those watershed moments. Like every every prince who has some sort of angst in a movie nowadays, any ruler is always some echo of Hamlet, right? They mm-hmm. can, they have to deal with Hamlet, and so he's like one of those types that if you have a detective, even though Bucket and some other detectives were first, Sherlock Holmes is the type that all these other detectives have to size up against. Well, it's so, like you could do an anti-Sherlock Holmes, but even like, there, he's your, Well, Hercule Poirot is an anti-Sherlock Holmes, and so a perfect example of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you like know, Hercule he, Poirot, he, he all, all things connected to Holmes's approach, and that's what defines him. Yeah, but he doesn't exist without Sherlock Holmes. And so that's right. He is, Sherlock Holmes is one of these kind of literary watershed moments mm-hmm. where a whole type and genre of character is established. Well, uh, you can, Whatever you think of him. You could make a case, and I think we probably should make a case, that Holmes is actually the first superhero. I think that's Or at least the first modern superhero. I guess you could go back and say, well, there's Achilles. Achilles Exactly. The Greek Greek heroes. But but in terms of modern superheroes, Sherlock Holmes really, I think, is the very first thing that we get, the first sort of superhero character who you can always trust to come through in any situation, no matter how the odds appear to be stacked against him because of his yeah. uh, superior intellect. And so you, even downstream of him in terms of like the comic book superhero genre, you have any number of, of, of superheroes that are just Sherlock Holmes rehashes or Sherlock Holmes plus. And so yeah. mm-hmm. Batman is Sherlock Holmes plus a mask, a cape and uh, some unlimited resources or Iron Man, the modern take on Iron Man is Sherlock Holmes plus unlimited resources and an engineering bent. But you yeah. still have, which is why, you know, Robert Downey Jr. can play both. Same same sort of thing. Well, I think the other thing that makes him such a precedent for these kinds of things is his bag of eccentricities. Superheroes need those kind of, he's grotesque, basically. He's He's over the top. He's got his heroine. He's got his violin. He's got all these little oddities to his character, these yep. oddities. And he's also got this wonderful supporting cast of characters that just he has a sidekick. make him look awesome. He's got a sidekick. He's got the inspector who's always one step behind, whatever his name is. I always forget. Lestrade. Lestrade. Although it started out with a couple different other guys, but Lestrade's the one who took, took hold. Yeah, and that's... In, you need your supporting cast and you need your kind of sharp angles to your personality. It's kind of interesting going back to the original stories and realizing that he's not nearly as eccentric as he's often betray- portrayed by yeah. Robert Downey Jr. or Benedict Cumberbatch. Most but, they're, but they're a correction from the sort of staid yes. interpret the Basil Rathbones in a correction in the right direction because he still spends days at a time strung out on drugs and any number of other things in his oh, yeah. books and novels and stories. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, I like those things as far as they go, but there is also this kind of thing of, well, if Sherlock Holmes really existed, you wouldn't even like him. And it's like, yeah, that's interesting for one movie, but does that always have to be the take? It turns out in literature, it's fun when characters are kind of eccentric and weird and different and we don't always have to rub our face in postmodern angst about the whole thing i could very easily turn this into a, a bag of gripes about benedict cumberbatch's sherlock holmes in general who has left a sour taste in my mouth well don't um, let him ruin it for you nathan no i no. guess hey, it was a promising uh, and interesting start it was yeah it was. I, I so still, i still like it. just i do think poorly. it's as far as 
what Jake was saying about the superhero approach. I, mm-hmm. I think that the thing to point out there also is that it's tied to this idea of scientific progress as well, because before then you would have had the prophets or the miracle workers or these heroes that were bigger than life. But or with, the gods. Yeah, but with Sherlock, what you have is just an, ex- an extraordinary intelligence. And so you could imagine that someone like this could exist. And it happens through science, the particular giftedness of the genius in this case, right? The sort of thing that we see with the literary geniuses that were coming out that we talked about. We'll talk about more of that with our Shakespeare episode next month, right? Sure. But so you have that idea. And I think that, yeah, so it is rooted in a very scientific understanding of what makes a hero. And that would be... That would which, define. It, which is the conceit of Batman. One of the principal conceits of Batman is given enough time, Batman will always win because he's yeah. that smart and has that right. m- many yeah. resources that it is. He has all the resources he needs and he has all the intelligence that he needs. The only thing that the only resource he lacks to defeat any enemy is time. And, and the same thing is also true of the principal conceit of of Tony Stark or Iron Man, at least the MCU version, which is given enough time, Tony will solve every single problem. He will defeat every single enemy. He will figure out time travel if that's what he has to do to win. He he does not need a suit. He is the suit. He is Iron Man. And that's the whole shtick. And Sherlock Holmes, that's all I think can be traced back to Sherlock Holmes, given enough time, he can outsmart anybody, outreason anybody, get to the bottom of absolutely anything, piece yeah, together the, the the whole machine from the one smallest part. Yep. Yep. And it's all rooted in, like, even the heroes in Marvel or the the comics that would come out, the things that seem the strangest are still rooted in some sort of science. It does away yeah. with anything. Like, there's no force... Like Star Wars still has some of that element to it, except they tried to ruin it with the newer what is your mitochondrias or whatever that was. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yes. But in other words, it tries to take any of the spiritual away by just making it all based in science that we just can't understand. Right. So what you call religion to yesterday, we call science. Yeah. Today. Which means that <clears throat> that makes Sherlock all that much more amazing because what we can't understand he does. Right. Because it's understandable to someone who has the intelligence to understand it. Mm -hmm. What I really think to everybody else. Yeah. What I really think is neat about the trick that Arthur Conan Doyle pulls uh, based on everything you guys are saying is he makes Sherlock Holmes pretty believable. I actually looked at a poll in researching this. 58% of the British public, when asked, thought that Sherlock Holmes actually existed, that he was a historical figure. Really? Um, Amazing. 20, 23% of them thought that Winston Churchill was a myth, so maybe they're just morons. But uh, <laughs> so it's, 20, the, it's the 25% <laughs> principle. Yeah, 25% of people are always wrong about any issues. 25% of people, you ask them, is oxygen good? And they will say no. 25% said that Winston Churchill was a myth? 23. 23%. Yeah. And 50, 56% saw that, thought, that, thought that Sherlock Holmes was real. I think there's something to that. He... He feels like a great man of history. He doesn't feel any more implausible, really, than Abraham Lincoln or... Well, par- yeah, uh, part of the par- parlor trick part of the parlor trick is that Doyle often really does pull off is in his setups and payoffs. So his setup is always super complex or super abstract, but the payoff always, you know, and you always have Watson there to interpret it, always saying, oh, well... Watson's always the voice of the reader on the one side. I just don't see how he reached that conclusion from this set of facts. And then Holmes explains it and Watson's, well, when you put it like that, it seems really obvious and really stupid. Like any child could. Watson is, especially in the earlier stories, really bad about being. A, Even slower than the average reader. Yeah, he he's slow and he is way too caught up in admiring Sherlock. But so it's like that improves, but that sense of this looked really complicated and impossible. And actually, when Holmes puts it that way, it sounds really obvious and simple. Yeah. 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 It gives a real plausibility to Holmes. 
Uh, we should say also that Sherlock Holmes, uh, one of his great antecedents is the character that Edgar Allan Poe created, Auguste Dupont or whatever, the guy from the Purloined Letter yeah, yeah. and Murders in the Rue Morgue and the Murder of Mary Rouge, arguably the first real Sherlock Holmes style detective, maybe even more so than what's his face in Bleak House. But the idea was definitely in the ether. It feels like somebody was going to do it if Sherlock Holmes didn't do it or if Arthur Conan Doyle, I keep confusing them, didn't do it. It just feels like it was, it was kind of something that everybody was swirling around at the time. And inevitable. Inevitable. Yes. I am inevitable. I am Iron Man. I don't have sound effects right now, but what's, what's you guys' baggage with Sherlock Holmes? I've read all of Sherlock and some of it twice. Maybe some of it even more. I don't know. Teenager, young adult, five-year-old, yesterday. Probably some, almost certainly some as teen as a teen, but there was, I, I got my hands on a complete Sherlock volume somewhere as a young adult and worked my way through it. Shoot for, for this, I listened to, I put some Sherlock stories on in the car, traveling on vacation and stuff. So I listened to a study in Scarlet, listened to the sign of four, which are two novels. I started listening to Adventures, which got me a scandal in Bohemia, which is a little novella. And then a handful of, of short stories that didn't quite make it all the way through adventures, but that leaves memoirs, Hound of the Baskervilles, The Return of Sherlock Holmes, Valley of Fear, and His his Last Bow. So you were quite the, the Baker Street Irregular in yeah. your connoisseur in your day. Yeah, I enjoyed Sherlock quite a bit. You know what? Maybe, when was the BBC, the Cumberbatch? The first season of... Uh, when was the first season was, of that? Yeah, It was in 2010. I was going to guess 2010. So I think in 2010, I see, I think I had that complete volume lying around and I'd picked at it here and there. And I think I decided to work through it because I I really enjoyed that first season of the Benedict Cumberbatch one. Maybe the second, how many seasons were there? Four? There were four in a Christmas special, and I would say the first two were pretty brilliant, and then the Christmas special sucked, and then everything else was self-indulgent trash. Yeah, I think that's my assessment, too. I think the first two seasons were pretty pretty great, and so I sort of like re-engaged with Holmes around that, and (laughs) Robert Downey Jr. had also, around that time, done his Guy Ritchie movies, so Sherlock had just kind of like popped his head back up, and... So I think I I worked through them systematically eventually over time, little by little at that point. So I, I don't know. It was just sort of like a fun thing really? to do. I I don't. I'm not a huge Sherlock fan actually. I just just is a thing that I've I'm really familiar with. So my baggage is I probably I think the first introduction I had to the concept of Sherlock Holmes was with Data in Star Trek. <laughs> Oh, the episode where he becomes Sherlock Holmes yeah. or something like that? And so, and all just through it being in the popular parlance of various things and shows that, oh, what's the show with the dog, Wishbone? Things like sure, that. Yeah. I never really read Sherlock Holmes. I think I read other detectives instead of him. I read the Lord Peter Whimsey novels by Dorothy Sayers. I read other things like that, but I never really got into Sherlock Holmes. Probably the closest I ever got was The Great Mouse Detective Yeah, with Disney. I loved that movie when I was a kid. And that's how some of the whole idea of who Sherlock Holmes was and Baker Street and all that got into my imagination. But sure. I don't know. I never never, never really read him. I, don't, I th- think I did get one of those. Did you ever see those abridged? They were like the white yes, books. Yes, like great covers. classics. Or yeah, like- those, when they were abridged. I think I read The Hound of the Baskervilles and that series. Along, you know, when I was a kid, but other than that, detective fiction just never really did it for me. Never really got into it all that much. And so I really think the first time I read much Sherlock Holmes was probably not too long ago, actually. Just never really had any reason to. So I would have had more familiarity with him through the Benedict Cumberbatch series through, oh man, Robert Downey Jr. Didn't he play him? Yeah, yeah. But especially, through, especially with the Benedict Cumberbatch. So, and other than that, just wasn't my wasn't my thing. So, 
Yeah. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of my relationship to Sherlock. My mine my baggage is similar. I did I I had like a collection not of Sherlock Holmes stories, but just of famous great short stories in general. I think from school in sixth fifth or sixth grade. And I remember it had two or three Sherlock Holmes stories and I read them and I really liked them when I was about that age. But and then I thought, I'm going to read all the Sherlock Holmes stories. And a little bit later in life, I got like a big collection. I may have even bought a big collection. And then I realized this isn't exactly my thing. There's not a lot of, it's not a flaw. It's it's just what they're doing is not exactly what I'm interested in. You know, there's just not a lot of character development. There's not a lot of scene setting, not a lot of just the things that I go to literature for. Sherlock Holmes doesn't have, and even the things that I go to adventure stories for, I don't think it really has. It's just more about setting up a puzzle and following Sherlock Holmes through as he tries to figure it out. And I understand that that can be very edifying. And I don't know, I always struggle to, I know sometimes I purposely am a jerk about Poirot and stuff like that, but honestly, I'm not trying to be condescending in the way that I talk about it. I understand that millions, billions of people love this stuff and are entertained by it and it helps them while away the hours until their miserable life grinds to an end but it's just not my bag of tea i don't like watching those homicide type shows where it's not about the characters and it's not about the milieu and it's not about a feeling but it's just about solving a puzzle it's really not my kettle of fish. Yeah, I mean, I famously, uh, and you guys didn't like Raymond Chandler as much, but that's kind of what it, what I like in detective fiction, where it's more about atmosphere, it's more about characters, it's more about good writing, good writing, and kind of encountering bizarre situations, yeah, and stuff like that. I think that that is one of the reasons I did enjoy the Peter Whimsey books, is because he's kind of an eccentric weirdo, but Dorothy Sayers in that. Uh, Inkling's fashion. She did care a bit about how she said things. Yeah. So she's a, she's a decent writer. If you've never read her before. I have never, I think maybe I've read a little bit of nonfiction by her, but I've never cracked a Peter Whimsey story. Did I stupidly I say earlier that she was the one who wrote father Brown? No, I think you said the whimsy. Okay. Chesterton of course read uh, father Brown's another example of something that I just have no interest in. I've tried yeah. to read it. <laughs> I love Chesterton. You know, I've read so much Chesterton in my life, but I cannot, make myself care about father brown it is just yeah not interesting to me he's another one along with oscar wilde that we haven't really done too much on in this podcast no i think we did a couple like just broad overview gk chesterton stuff but never have tackled one of his novels yeah the problem is as i think i've said on this podcast before i'm not the world's biggest fan of his yeah of his novels yeah i think there's some really cool stuff in them and interesting ideas, but I'm just always disappointed that he's like the man who was Thursday is such a cool story. And then it just gets weird, weird, yep. transcendental. And I just don't like it. It's, it's, I find it off putting. So hot takes here. Hot takes. I think the most interesting, maybe one of the most interesting things about Sherlock Holmes is his appeal the way that his existence appeals to the question of to what degree are you capable of emulating him? And so it's really about how fascinating you find him as a, or find, or find yourself. Yeah. How, how, how good do you think you, how well do you think you measure up? How close can you shape yourself into a little Sherlock Holmes? Can you pay better attention to the details like i might deduce right now that brandon's had one too many drinks and i'm just smoking a pipe i'm trying to show you that i am sherlock holmes <laughs> got it yeah, yeah. nailed it that's all it takes right yeah i just need to What's smoke that? a pipe smoke i do pipe, think yep. that there. well yeah never mind we, we no need to open up any cans of worms no what's the can of worms Oh, that I think there are certain people that think that simply smoking a pipe is a superpower. It makes you into <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Sure, I will never. It's forget. like it's like a co- it's like a costume you put on, like right. deciding to hunt and stuff like that. I, w- I will never forget. A friend of mine went to a pipe convention. He was, yeah, he was a roommate of mine at the time, and he decided he w- we were into tobacco and stuff at the time. We were very young men, and he decided he was going to go 
to a pipe convention and he went and I think his interest in being at a pipe convention died a little bit when he saw a group of homies walking through the pipe convention and they all had black suits on and ties and bowler hats, like black bowler hats. And they all had curled mustaches, like waxed. Wow. Uh, silly, that's, like the that's Thompson really Brothers funny. and Tintin or something like that. And they were all smoking their pipes. And I think, if memory serves, they had canes. As yeah. Well. well, I mean, they're just, I like, guess my point was dorks. that there is a certain type of person who thinks that if you just pose the right way, that that makes you into that thing. And so they think that if they have the right books in their library, smoke the right pipes, drink the right drinks, that they are suddenly the most brilliant reformed minds to have ever lived. I grew well, up with some guys like this. It's one of the reasons that I resent a little bit the, the new Sherlock Holmes where they're like, he'd be insufferable to live with. Because then some people are like, wow, if I'm going to be an eccentric genius, then I, I have to become to insufferable. Be, yeah. Yeah. Just say mean things to people and act like I have Asperger's all the time and yeah. uh, be a, a huge self-involved jerk. Like, well, high functioning sociopath, Nathan. Oh uh, yeah. Well, the real Sherlock Holmes actually isn't a high functioning sociopath. He's just a vaguely eccentric dude that likes his legal drugs and is more excited when he's on the case, but I don't know. He doesn't seem like reading back, reading neuroses into this guy. I don't buy it. Actually. I don't think that that's what Arthur Conan Doyle had in mind. I think Sherlock Holmes is just a Victorian gentleman. Sherlock, or Arthur Conan Doyle had himself in mind. And the thing is, so part of the pleasure of Sherlock Holmes is, can you match wits with him? Can you get ahead of him? Um, can you use these stories or these books or these novels as sort of a training ground for your own mind to do the same sort of thing? But I think the answer is no, right? I mean, unless you know 47 varieties of tobacco ash, oftentimes you can't solve the mysteries, right. which is what frustrated me as a kid when I finally gave up on these stories. Yeah, you have um, to have, just like, often you have to have just the special little bit of extra knowledge. You have to know about the kind of, surgeon what a surgeon's stitch is when you see it on a sleeve you have to know one of the funniest ones to read is the one where they're all confused about this i think i think this is the the orange pips maybe they're all confused because i think because it's one that i listen to with the kids in the car they're all confused about this these guys and they've got this they spent this time in the american south and they're being hunted by this organization and these three letters, K, 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 keep showing up. And it's, it's just sort of funny. Like everybody's, Watson's really confused. K, 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 what could, on earth could, and eventually, you know, Holmes is like, aha, well, you see, my dear Watson, there's an organization called the Ku Klux Klan, and they're a bunch of racist idiots and slavers. And you see that? K, yeah. K. That's funny. But, but, but all, yeah, a lot of homes is that, but, but not all of it, all, you know, some right. of it is just as simple as the, the fascinating thing is uh, things are like, well, I could tell that he's a, that he's a drunk. Well, his pocket watch, you know, he's got like three or four reasons about where the scratches are on his pocket watch and things like that. And what they indicate that you can, you, you can look at something like that and say, okay, well, we don't have people carrying around pocket watches who have to wind them every night and are sloppy because they're drunk and whatever else. But there are any number of things like that, that we might be able to notice about somebody or pay attention to or clue into. I think in the cases where it's sort of character based, I like that better personally, even something as simple as, I mean, I know it's stupid and everybody says it's sexist now and everything, but we're going to trick Irene Adler into revealing the location because a woman right. will always go to her most precious thing when the house is on fire or whatever it is. I like that kind of thing. That's fun to sort of match wits with Sherlock Holmes and what would I do if I needed to get somebody to reveal some information or even mm -hmm. something like the old Poe story, the Perloid letter, where it's like, if you have to hide something, hide it in extreme plain sight. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that I think that Doyle got much better at. So I think cheap tricks, Mark Holmes early on the cheap mm -hmm. tricks being, you know, the 
well, you know, I could tell from this brand of tobacco here and this, that, and the other thing. But I think he refined his ability to sort of, and, and understood that the appeal to the, to the reader is if I had been there, if I had been Lestrade, if I had been Watson, if I had been in the, could I have done the same thing? Could I have followed the breadcrumbs and got to that place? And so that's when he starts doing things like the clever trick of Irene Adler of feigning the fire and watching her. And then, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. You're making me realize there is a variety of story that I like where I'm matching wits or imagining myself or having that kind of relationship with a type of character. It's just not what I find personally appealing about Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I like the kind of psychological detectives in these uh, serial killer. Well, no, I don't like Perot, but that's all. That's his whole shtick, right? The psychological. But unfortunately, Agatha Christie, her whole shtick is not understanding people or writing them in a compelling way because she sucks at what she does. So that's a problem that kind of detracts. I like the kind of, I can go into the serial killer's lair and put myself in his mind, you know, that, that whole kind of network TV contrivance kind of silence of the lambs type thing because it's it's like i don't always like it if it's done poorly or cliched or if it's too perverse or anything like that but it's like yeah i can understand and match wits with people psychologically and i can understand and match wits with people in terms of their level of depravity those are things that personally i have some affinity you get. for yeah but maybe you just like the villains better than yeah, well, I do. I do. That's true. Probably. But in terms of like observational detail and like he went left when he should have gone right or he used this tool, which means he logically he couldn't do that. That sort of thing which isn't 100 percent, I guess, of Sherlock Holmes. But anytime it is that kind of thing, it's really just like I feel so defeated from the outset. It's like my brain doesn't work that way. I would not be able to yeah. solve those mysteries. I'm not good at locked room mysteries, those where you go into those rooms and you have to like notice all the details and the paintings over here and the key is over here and all that kind of stuff. It's just not the way that my brain works at all. Um, but if it was so I like it. But if it was psychologically. Yeah. yeah. It is more of a If you had like a serial killer things. trying to manipulate you, that would be different. Right. Yeah. I'd be like, you uh, have daddy issues. And he'd be like, duh, I'm a serial killer. And I'd be like, well, I thought it was insightful. And he'd be like, it's not. And then he'd stab me. He'd wear your face. <laughs> yeah. It'd be good. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. But uh, and then we never yeah. know. Yeah. He'd maybe hosting the podcast. Maybe I'm a serial killer wearing a flayed Nathan face right now. <laughs> There's one detail. Yeah, just never know. If you just noticed, dude, Nathan wears different glasses. Boring. I don't know. I don't want to make Nathan always had a little like, bit of pasta sauce in the corner of his mouth. Where's the pasta sauce? There's 47 varieties of pasta sauce, and Nathan always had. Uh, Nathan kippers. would never eat that type of pasta sauce. Yeah. No, he's too fat. No, he was too thin. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Too sweet. I don't know. I, I always liked Encyclopedia Brown. You guys like Encyclopedia Brown? I don't I think I've it. ever read Encyclopedia Brown. I remember there was one where know. he never caught read somebody. Did you guys ever read the Clue books based on the board game? No. No. Those were pretty awesome. Those were like mysteries where it'd be like, Mr. Green handed the object to Mrs. Scarlet, who handed the object to the second person who got it, who handed it to the fourth person from right, and, and it you just have to try and keep track of it all in your i don't know i don't know raymond chandler he's really the good mystery writer because the mystery doesn't make any sense and it's just like people saying clever things to each other in marlo getting beat up and marlo getting beat up and being a martyr and being sad and depressed and drinking too much and making talk with babes and stuff like that that's i like the atmosphere and the the wit and all the stuff that smart people like. I'm I'm not like a big Agatha Christie head. All the stuff that simpletons like. Uh, that's that's not for me. Only smart stuff for Nathan. Only smart stuff for Nathan. 
trying to be intentionally <laughs> insulting, but Brendan and Jake are over it. They don't care. Yeah, we're, we've it's just pretty much. They're, they we are just they're, gone. We're I, gone. I could insult Agatha Christie until the cows came home. They wouldn't defend her. Nope. Because they know she's fat and stupid. And one of the most probably easily defensible authors of the 20th century, being one of the most widely read, yeah. the most widely Hitler, read. Hitler had a pretty popular government going there for a while, too. Yeah, well. Point, set, match. Can't argue with that. Nathan. Yeah, you win. You win. Well done, Nathan. There's no virtue in popular appeal, and it shouldn't be taken into consideration whatsoever in the case of any author, which I think is the subject of our Stephen upcoming Stephen King episode. Yeah. And the subject of our upcoming Shakespeare episode. I think they both kind of deal with that. Well, look, I'm glad people like Sherlock Holmes. I liked it at a certain point, and I might still like it if I was a different sort of person, but instead I'm the kind of person who doesn't like it that much. But I'm glad other people like it. Man, I can never say this without it sounding super insulting and condescending. What's Jake, you're good at not sounding insulting and condescending when you don't want to. How, what, how would you say that same sentiment in a way that, or Brandon, you can play too. What's the way to say that exact sentiment, get all those thoughts out without sounding like a jerk? It's elementary, my dear Nathan. Something, by the way, that Sherlock Holmes never actually said in any of the stories. Shut up. Take it away, Jake. <laughs> uh, well, I understand and respect the fact that many of our listeners don't like Nathan. Um, mm -hmm. I've got great sympathy for that. <laughs> but A lot of fair points. <laughs> he does make things work and gives us the show and creates space for me and Brandon. So you take the bad with the good and the good with the bad and it is what it is. I don't know how much you brought along the Nathan haters there. <laughs> I'm not convinced. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I well, okay. Insulting for everyone. <laughs> there are times that you have Whatever, an how eccentric. Many? There are times you have an eccentric curmudgeon that it's really difficult to like that eccentric curmudgeon, but they bring a certain Je ne sais quoi. And so people put up with them because it wouldn't work without them. Sometimes you tolerate it. In, in, sometimes you tolerate it. Intolerable, insufferable people are the geniuses that solve the mystery of life or even the mystery of great podcasting. I don't know. My understanding yeah. of Sherlock Holmes is a sociopath, a high functioning sociopath. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think that's what we concluded, Nathan, is you are the Benedict Cumberbatch of podcasting. Wow. That's even in jest, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> He's only one of the most highly successful actors of our generation. Right, but we all know I'm You're better that. looking than he is. <laughs> yeah, I'm better looking than Benedict Cumberbatch. I do a better American accent. I'm a better host of the Bookening. I bet Benedict Cumberbatch would suck at hosting the Bookening, to be honest. I bet suck. if he hosted this podcast even one time, our listenership would go up by a factor of 10. Well, you know what? If I laid, I thought Hitler's you were about to give him a compliment, table. Jake. <laughs> oh, if Hitler hosted this podcast, our listenership would go up. <laughs> Hitler, yeah, yeah, yeah. An evil man. What are you doing? Me? Yeah. The light keeps turning red on my microphone. I think it's getting too loud. Sorry. So you blow into it as as loud and close as you can. <laughs> It was an experiment, dear right. Watson. <laughs> Brandon, how, or how many deer stalkers out of 19 do you give to the entire canon of Sherlock Holmes stories by <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh, this is so unfair, Nathan. 17. You know, the, the thing that drives me nuts is you guys agree with me about this, but you're just like, oh, yeah, we like Sherlock Holmes. He's great. Now, I'm, I'm just the honest one, and then I get pilloried for... <laughs> when have we ever said we don't like Sherlock Holmes? Even off I, podcast. You haven't. I just know it for a fact. <laughs> you just know you just know it, huh? Brandon, well, that you don't like anything. Wanna, that makes me want to double down even more. Okay, fine. Seventeen out of nineteen Deerstalker hats. Seventeen out of nineteen Deerstalker yeah. hats. 
All right. What he Jay, does, he does it well. He's iconic. That's the same number as you gave before. I just want yeah. that to be. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> double down 18 out of 19. Jay, I got one other thing for you here, Nathan. Yeah. What else? <laughs> to yourself, I can't do it. My microphone doesn't work that way. Oh. Uh, Jake, how many heroin needles out of 27? Uh, opium needles, to? Nathan. Oh, sorry, opium needles. 24 out of 27. Opium needles. Yeah. If, 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 it, if there's any like Holmes heads out there, then your super sharp deductive, inductive, abductive reasoning has been sharpened to the place where you recognize a dirty liar. <laughs> and there are two of them on this podcast. <laughs> Right now, these guys don't care about Sherlock Holmes. They don't. They would never read another Sherlock Holmes again. They wouldn't have read it this time if we were doing it for the podcast. That's I'm true, you, folks. That's true. I've read plenty of Sherlock Holmes, and I have no intention of ever going back to Sherlock Holmes ever again. Out of nineteen, whoa! And so twenty-seven out of twenty-seven, it is. So, Brandon, who do you like better, <laughs> Tolstoy or Sherlock Holmes? You fat freak! <laughs> whoa! <laughs> <laughs> oh man <sighs> you know who has shaped the popular imagination more Brennan, <laughs> uh, what's a better work of fiction hound of the baskervilles or tolstoy's happy marriage nathan <laughs> how many pipes out of 32 would you give to the entire oeuvre of Arthur Conan Doyle concerning well, first Sherlock I would Holmes. observe first I would observe the the type of pipe and the speckles on each pipe and I would know yeah. every variety of ash that was yeah in each pipe and it would enable me to solve a exciting mystery yeah good so far and then I'd give it zero. <laughs> Whoa! For the, the no the respect, will so you're like no, no respect the for the, the the first superhero, the first great detective, the most depicted character, human character in all of film and television. No respect. No respect at all. Yeah, it's like you and Harold Bloom should get married and be happy together. Yeah, grumpy little babies. <laughs> <laughs> Grumpy little zombie babies. I think they would have yeah. to be given context. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Thank you for pointing that out. Nothing like having babies with a dead grump. <laughs> a dead grumpy man of all yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs sound <laughs> effects? Pitch me up with a dead grumpy woman for crying out loud. You know, I don't want to marry any. I've got a live, ungrumpy wife. I don't need a dead grumpy woman or a dead grumpy man. Okay. Sherlock Holmes, I don't know, guys. I'll give him 17 out of 17 for those who like that sort of thing. How about oh, what that? a nice guy. What a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't, <laughs> z- zero. Nada. Nada. Big goose egg. <laughs> One. <laughs> uh, oh well, my folks, goodness. there's an there's there's honesty in podcasting, and then there's Brandon and Jake, <laughs> the dirty <laughs> liars. Oh, uh, and you be the judge. You use your deductive reasoning to decide whether you like honest, likable podcasters more or. Fat freak. <laughs> uh, you, just, you decide. You decide. You be the judge. Uh, and Jake, you're being lumped in with the fat freaks this time. Okay. Sorry to have to do it, but yeah, well, welcome, you, you've got welcome the, to you've the got, club, Jake. You've got the thin, honest people, and then you've got the fat freaks. It's not true, folks. Brandon's not fat. He's not fat. Guys, this being a bonus episode and it being pretty late in the evening, if people didn't figure that out i'd say we could probably not shout out the donors i feel like if I, if there is an episode we've recorded in recent memory that it could be induced or abduced or that it was evening this might be the one yeah it's kind of a good 
go out on a limb, lean over my skis, throw that out there. It's pretty dangerous to ski in a tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice reasoning there, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> it is dangerous to ski in a tree. Whoa, Jake just went on his side. Look at that. Oh, Jake did go on his side. I wonder if I can go on my side. I don't know. I think he also maybe have left the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jake's dead, <laughs> folks. That means it's gone by for us, right? That people can deduce, induce, abduce, whatever they want, who they are, our Patreons. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. Give to us more than a dollar because if you give to us only a dollar, you're a cheapskate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't take much deduction for us to figure that out. (laughs) Hey, but we'll take it. We'll take your your cheapskate money. $12 a year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your $12 a year. We'll take it all the way to the bank. What can you buy for $12? Oh, man. Nothing. A gallon Nothing. of gas in Biden's America. Am I yeah. right, Brandon? You are right, Nathan. <laughs> right leaning, that is. Yeah, man. Uh, Got to build that wall, man. Lock her up. Build it. Build, build that all right. wall. I think Jake, I don't know what happened to Jake. He's gone. He looks real happy, though. So he does. It looks like that's he was That's the way I want to remember him. <laughs> yeah, let's remember him as the guy that was in the middle of a laugh when his zoom feed died or whatever it is hey, it's fun to end All this right. episode on a mystery it is the mystery yeah. of what I happened hope, to jake i hope it wasn't a gas line exploding and his, his house <laughs> blowing up and his family perishing and yeah, it'll be awful flame. that we're laughing about it that, that would i i will probably cut that out of the podcast if that's what ended up being the case Probably for the best all right good night brandon so who told me that joke what the joke about the golfer did you tell me that joke i don't think so what's the joke about the golfer Man was out golfing. Yeah, it's it's appropriate for the podcast. Man was out golfing with his wife, and he hit the golf ball, and it rolled behind behind this barn. And he said, well, honey, I'll just take the penalty, and I'll move the golf ball to the other side of the barn. And she said, well, husband, I think you're good enough. Why don't you just open the doors to the barn and hit the golf ball through that way? And he said, okay, let's do that. And so they open the doors to the barn, and then he hits the ball, and... It ricochets off the wall and hits his wife in the head and kills her. (laughs) He's pretty sad, and about a year passes, and he finally feels like he's up for playing this course again, and he goes with a friend. And so he hits it, and again, the same thing happens, and it goes behind this the barn again, and he goes, and he's going to pick up the ball. And his friend says the same thing. No, why don't you just open the doors to the barn? The guy says, no, no. Last time I did that, and I got a six. On this course. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, man. All right. I better leave a little extra space at this podcast for our <laughs> listeners to stop <laughs> laughing <laughs> and or stop giving us one-star reviews. Uh, Wasn't that great, Nathan? <laughs> that was a, a good use of everyone's time. All right. Good night, listeners. Good night, Brandon. Good night, Nathan. <laughs> Bye.